Our text for this evening is the one that was read to us in Isaiah chapter 48. Before we begin, let's pray. Ask the Lord to touch us with his word tonight. God and Father in heaven, you are our God, you are our Lord, our Father through Christ, and we probably don't think often enough about our relationship to you, O Lord, and we want to do that tonight through the prophet Isaiah, and we want to see a little bit of your heart as is described here, what pleases you, and how we, your children, can please you, and how we disappoint you when we do not keep your commandments and follow your word. So, Lord, help us tonight so that we might leave here loving you more. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Some years ago, I was reading a commentary on Isaiah on this section, and the author spoke about the cries of God for his people, and that stayed with me, the cries of God for his people. And that's the subject tonight from Isaiah 48, specifically verses 17 through 19. Before I talk about these wonderful verses, I just remind you of something that you notice often when you open your Bibles that, you know, most of our Bible is Old Testament. Uh, actually, 77% of the entire Bible is Old Testament. And that's just because it covers a longer span of history than the New Testament. And it also is because God was working with the human race from the very beginning and preparing the world for the fullness of the time when Christ would come. And one of the features of the Old Testament then is the uh, frequent discourse between God and his people. That is through the prophet, of course, he speaks to his people and he speaks to them about their lives and the way they're living. And, and uh, in cases like this, in Isaiah 48, he, he shows us something of his heart. And so we're talking tonight about the cries of God for his people. And I refer you back again to the passage that was read, uh, reading just again, verse 17 through 19, to get us started, where thus says the Lord, the Redeemer, thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord, thy God, which teacheth thee to profit, which, or who leadeth thee, by the way that thou shouldst go. So here you see in verse 17, God is describing the relationship that he has with his people, specifically in terms of being their redeemer, uh, being the Holy One of Israel, being the Lord, their God, who of course brought them out of the land of Egypt and established them in their own land, but notice specifically that God, as he's speaking to his people here, explains that what he's doing with them, and it's all good. And what he's doing with them is simple. He's teaching them to profit, teaching them to live their lives and invest their lives under the guidance of his word so that they might profit. And also, which leadeth thee by the way that thou shouldest go. And that's good news because we don't always know the way to go. Life is very confusing. Life can be very complex. And in Israel, even though they were a civil nation and 
All their boundaries were there in the old covenant. They still needed a guide, a shepherd. And so he's speaking to them about that in these verses. But then when you come to verse 18, you see the cry. But the Lord is their redeemer. And for us in this new covenant age, Christ is our savior. The Lord was their teacher. But we are followers of Christ. And so we are at a new level, at a higher level, you might say, in the New, in the new Testament, because Christ has come, his life has been manifested, the disciples spoke about how they saw him, they, they touched him, they ate with him, they fellowship with him, they communed with him, they followed him, they listened to his teaching, they adored his, his person and the grace that they saw in him. So it all takes it to a new level, and now we are to follow Christ, uh, as the apostles followed Christ, and we're to be like him. But in the Old Testament, he taught them for their prophet. And so our Savior, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, incarnated in this world, also teaches us to prophet. The Lord was their leader. Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, but they didn't pay attention. That's verse 18. Oh, that thou hadst hardened, hearkened to my commandments. Then had thy peace been as a river and thy righteousness as the waves of the sea. So they didn't pay attention, and they missed his promised blessings. Verse 19, thy seed also had or would have been as the sand, and the offspring of thy bowels like the, gra uh, like the gra uh, gravel thereof. His name should not have been cut off nor destroyed from before me. So try to enter in to the pathos, the passion of these two verses. God in verse 17 telling them what, he's, what he has been to them. And then in verse 18, expressing his sorrow over their neglect. One writer said, Every sensitive teacher knows the pain of heart that comes when he pours himself out for students who prove to be unteachable. Israel proved to be like that, verse 18, and God expresses his deep concern for them because they are themselves the losers. And here, he says, is one of the Bible's great cries from the very heart of God. And he lists in closing then uh, Genesis 3, verse 9, Deuteronomy 5, Psalm 81, Hosea 11, verse 8, Luke 13, 34, and 35, one of the great cries from the very heart of God. Let me show you a few other places where you see the heart of God crying out for his people. Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Please turn there, Jeremiah 2, verses 1 through 3. Jeremiah 2, verse 1. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and cry in the ears of Jerusalem, saying, Thus saith the Lord, I remember thee, 
the kindness of thy youth, the love of thine espousals, when thou wentest after me in the wilderness, in a land that was not sown, Israel was holiness unto the Lord and the first fruits of his increase. All that devour him shall offend, evil shall come upon them, saith the Lord. So who is the one crying here? Well, it's Jeremiah. Go and cry in the ears of Jerusalem. Yes, it's Jeremiah. But Jeremiah is just a spokesman for God. It's really God who's crying out and saying these things to his people, through the prophet, with the actual passion, the pathos of the human voice, the expressions that would be on Jeremiah's face to show this disappointment, this, this displeasure. Jeremiah becomes a visual picture of what God is trying to express to his people so they might feel the weight of their life lives and behavior. Ezekiel wrote similarly in Ezekiel 16, Ezekiel 16 verses 8 through 14. Ezekiel 16, 8. Now when I passed by thee and looked upon thee, behold, the time was the time of love. And I spread my skirt over thee and covered thy nakedness. Yea, I swear unto thee and entered into a covenant with thee, saith the Lord God, and thou becamest mine. Then I washed thee with water. Yes, I thoroughly washed away thy blood from thee, and I anointed thee with oil. I clothed thee also with embroidered work and shod thee with badger skin and I girded thee about with fine linen, and I covered thee with silk. I decked thee also with ornaments, and I put a bracelet upon thy hands, and a chain on thy neck, and I put a jewel on thy forehead, and earrings in thine ears, and a beautiful crown upon thine head. Thou wast thou, thus wast thou decked with gold and silver, and thy raiment was of fine linen, and silk, and embroidered work. And thou didst eat fine flour, and honey, and oil, and thou wast exceeding beautiful, and thou didst prosper unto a kingdom. And thy renown went forth among the heathen for thy beauty, for it was perfect through my comeliness, which I had put upon thee, says the Lord God. But thou didst trust in thine own beauty, and played the harlot because of thy renown, and pourest out thy fornications, on everyone that passed by. And so you see the heart of God describing his love for them, his covenant with them, his choice of them, and the disappointment that they were to him. Another writer named John Oswald, he comments on this, and he says, and I quote, but even beyond what these titles reveal about God's person and character is what his behavior teaches. What God's behavior teaches, God is a teacher and a guide. The relationship between God and his people is not one of power manipulation from either side. God didn't reveal himself to them in order to dominate them, nor for them to master him. Rather, he has shown himself to the human race 
in order to show us what we were made for and how we can return to that goal. And that's what we're reading in our text in Isaiah 48, verses 17 through 19. This heart of the teacher wanting to reproduce himself in the student and wanting the student to shine for the pleasure of the teacher and the guide. Even Paul in the New Testament, and most of these passages are passages like that are found in the Old Testament, but you have a similar passage in the New Testament. I'll just read 2 Corinthians 1, verses 23 and 24, where Paul said, We don't lord it over your faith, but we are workers with you for your joy, for in your faith you are standing firm. Psalm 81 Verses 13 and 14 says, Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. I would quickly subdue their enemies, and I would turn my hand against their adversaries. Giving you another quote here, bear with the quotes. Albert Barnes says, concerning these passages, this expresses the earnest wish and desire of God. He would have greatly preferred that they should have kept his law. He had no wish that they should sin and that these judgments should come upon them. The doctrine taught here is that God prefers that men should keep his laws. He does not desire that they should be sinners or that they should be punished. It was so with regard to the Jews and it is so with regard to us in all cases, at all times, and with reference to all his creatures, God prefers holiness to sin. He sincerely desires that there should be perfect obedience to his commandments. And then quotes Psalm 81 verses 13 and 14, which I just read. You remember in the New Testament how our Lord wept over the people? As he approached Jerusalem in Luke 19 and verse 41, he wept over the city. Remember how Jesus wept over Lazarus's tomb? And that was very personal because of his love for Lazarus and that entire family. But here you see him approaching the city of God, Jerusalem. And usually when the Israelites got close to Jerusalem, they rejoiced. Because they had arrived at the dwelling of God. But in this instance, when Jesus saw the city, he cried. He wept over it. Turn to 2 Corinthians 2, verses 2 through 4. You see Paul weeping over God's people. 2 Corinthians 2, starting at verse 2. Paul said, For if I make you sorry, who is he then that maketh me glad? But the same which is made sorrow, sorry by me. And I wrote this same unto you, lest when I come I should have sorrow from them of whom I ought to rejoice, having confidence in you all that my joy 
is the joy of you all. For out of much affliction, notice this, out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote unto you with many tears. Not that ye should be grieved, but that ye might know the love which I have more abundantly unto you. Think about it. In the book of Hebrews, as the writer was exhorting the people and talked to them about submitting and obeying, submitting to and obeying their leaders, he said that they might do their work with joy and not with grief. But here is one of those times and places and people where Paul had much grief over the Corinthians. They brought him much sorrow. So Paul, like Jeremiah or Ezekiel, speaking, they speak as representatives of God to show the people how God is affected by his people's behavior. And that's the first lesson as I bring this to a close with some applications tonight. This is the first thing that we want to consider. It is that we, as God's people, should always remind ourselves that our behavior always affects God for joy or sadness. Sometimes Christians have this hyper-grace view of their relationship to God, that since Christ has forgiven all our sins, and we are fully justified in Christ, that it doesn't really matter how we live. That's not the most important thing, they say. It's not, it doesn't matter how we live. It just matters that we believe in Christ and are justified by his grace. But God is concerned about our behavior. And at times in our lives when we, when we know, we know our conscience is telling us that we're not pleasing him, then we should ask him to forgive us and receive us because we know from the Bible how God feels when his people do not keep his word. They bring displeasure to him. In one sense, of course, being justified fully by his grace, we are always pleasing to God in Christ. And that's where I started to say before, many Christians go wrong. They think, oh, I am pleasing to God in Christ. When God sees me, he sees Christ, they say. Of course, this is true. This is only part of the truth. Because when God sees me, yes, he sees me through his son, Jesus Christ. But he also sees me as his son, or you as his daughter. And my behavior does affect him. And these passages are proof that God cries out for his people. And so always remember that your behavior, as I remind myself that my behavior in my life, my personal life, my treatment of others does affect God. He's my heavenly father. Just like the behavior of our children affects us as parents, so the be our behavior as Christians affects God 
because he is our father. He's training us. Remember the passage that we're looking at here. Keep that in mind. Our God is the one who teaches us. He teaches us to profit. That is, to live life profitably. And he leads us by the way that we should go. So therefore, if we're not following the lessons of our teacher and we're not going in the way that he's showing us to go in, then like any teacher who pours himself out for his students, he is disappointed or he is grieved. And the Bible warns us not to grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Isaiah, I believe it's chapter 64, it speaks about the Israelites grieving God in the wilderness. And in the New Testament, we are told, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom we were sealed to the day of redemption. And all of this is just a reminder that our behavior affects God. Sometimes we find ourselves committing the same sin over and over again. And this thought captures us. And we, like, we get hold of ourselves and we say, I must turn. I must ask God to give me a fresh supply of strength to overcome this thing, whatever it may be, so that I can bring pleasure to him. And of course, God is always pleased when we ask forgiveness for our sins because he knows then that our hearts are soft toward him just as his heart is soft toward us. The Lord doesn't, deal with us according to our sins. He doesn't always, we don't know how the Lord works in our lives. We don't know whether something that's happening to us is a judgment of God or a discipline of God, but we do know this, that as a general principle, God does not deal with us according to our sins. That he deals with us according to his grace, that he's gracious to us and he's, he's merciful and, and we, he gives us a lot that we don't deserve. And he puts up with a lot from us. But that shouldn't change my personal view that even though he puts up with a lot from me, I still would prefer to be pleasing him always. And Paul said to the, in the Ephesian letter that we're always learning what is pleasing to the Lord. We're always striving to know, Lord, what pleases you? Is this pleasing to you? Is the way I'm speaking right now pleasing to you? Is the way I spoke to my brother and my sister, my, my, my wife, my husband, my friend, my pastor, my deacon, whoever it may be, my boss. Lord, is this, was that pleasing to you? And this is a good exercise for us because it keeps our hearts off. And it's always a constant reminder to us that our behavior affects God for joy or sadness. And then secondly, we learn from the Isaiah passage that pleasing God brings great peace and blessing in life. He said in verse 18, Oh, that thou hadst hearkened to my commandments, then thy peace had been like a river, and thy righteousness as the waves of the sea. Your seed also had been as the sand, and the offspring of thy bowels like the gravel thereof. And so the principle here is that pleasing God always brings great peace and blessing in life. And you can see this just by reading Psalm 119 seeing all the blessing that comes from keeping God's law. Remember that pleasing God brings great peace and blessing in our lives. So it pleases him. It brings blessing for us. And thirdly then, my final exhortation is the actual exhortation of God 
toward his people. In verse 18, oh, that you had hearkened to my commandments. Naturally, the exhortation or application here is that we should pay attention, pay attention to God's moral commandments. And he's given them to us in a summary way. You know, if, 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 as an Israelite, as an Israelite, you would have had to remember many, many laws. They're, they're the ones found in the book of Deuteronomy. And you would have had to remember all of those and, and apply them in your civil life. Well, we don't, as Christians, need to do that. And so what remains, since Christ has fulfilled the law, what remains for us is the summary, the simple summary, the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, which are God's foundational moral commandments. These are the commandments to which he's referring here in Isaiah chapter 48. They contain the roadmap, the blueprint of Christian ethics, moral living, and behavior that pleases the Lord. The first four commandments relating to our relationship to God and the and commandments 5 through 10 expressing our relationship toward man, toward people. And they're basic and they're beautiful and they're simple and yet they're broad and they have a great application and you can always apply each one to many specific circumstances in life. And so we should pay attention to those. Perhaps it's time for you to do a little more study on the Ten Commandments. Take that book up you have on your shelf on the Ten Commandments that you haven't read for a long, long time and just, just, just every once in a while just reorient yourself to the compass of the Ten Commandments, God's moral law. But when Jesus came, of course, he didn't abolish the Ten Commandments. And he said that in Matthew chapter 5, I didn't come to abolish the law. And he talked about, he talked about fulfilling it. That is, fulfilling, of course, the civil law in the Old Testament period. But he came to establish the law, that is, the commandments. But he also did more. For example, he gave us the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And on he went through the eight Beatitudes. And these Beatitudes are added to the moral law because they paint a picture of the character of a Christian man or a Christian woman in the kingdom of God and what that person looks like. And notice each one begins with the word blessed, which corresponds to the word prophet in Isaiah 48. I am the Lord that teaches thee to profit. And the gospel of Jesus Christ forms in us a Christian character that is filled with profit, which he called blessedness. And then, of course, you have in the Pauline epistles, you have the, you have the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, patience, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. The fruit of the Spirit is, is the highest, the highest expression of God's work in our lives. I've been working on, actually working on a book for a number of years now. It's been stalled for the last year on the relationship between the Ten Commandments, the Beatitudes, and the fruit of the Spirit. And I'm praying that uh, in this next part of my life, I'll be able to, to, uh, to finish that up. And uh, I've had many encouragements by men of God to do that. 
Um, and I hope that I'll be able to help God's people to see that he has given us these three, I call them standards, these three standards to help us to please him. Ten Commandments, the Beatitudes, and the fruit of the Spirit. And so I close with verse 18 of Isaiah 48. And pray, hope that as I read this verse in closing, that you will apply it to yourself and your relationship to God. He is your God. And he's, he's trying to teach you how to profit. He's, he's trying to lead you in the way that you should go, just as he's trying to teach me how to profit and teach me in the way that I should go. So therefore, let it never be said of us by God, oh, that only she had hearkened. Oh, that he would have only listened to my commandments. Then his way would have been successful. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you, Lord, for your personal relationship that you have with your people. We, we stand amazed at it. We can't comprehend how a being could be in relationship to millions, billions of people who know you, however many Christians there are right now on the earth, Lord. Maybe it's not billions, but how you can do that. But you're God, and you can have a relationship with each one as if that one were the only one in the universe. Lord, while you care for everything in the universe, because you're God, you, you're omnipotent, you're, you're everywhere, you know everything. You're the father of spirits. You created the heart, the spirit of every individual, whether they know you or not now, and you know their hearts. Lord, you are a great God, so great. We can hardly fathom your, your greatness, and yet, we want to please you, Lord. We thank you for the privilege that we have to be your children and to even have this issue to deal with in life, that in life our concern is to learn, as Paul put it, what is pleasing to the Lord. We're thankful for that, O oh Lord. We're thankful that we can live our lives with such purpose, for we know that if we please you throughout our lives, that when we see you, our joy will be enhanced and enriched, Lord, and Perhaps that's what John was talking about in 1 John 2 when he talked about not being ashamed at your coming. So, Lord, we thank you for your love for us. We love you back and pray that we will love you, Lord, with fullness, fervency, and faithfulness, Lord, and help us, Lord, whenever we do disappoint you and grieve you, help us to, to turn, turn from our sins and to turn to you with humility and plead with you, Lord, for the restoration of this precious relationship that we have with you, Heavenly Father, through the Lord Jesus Christ and through the Spirit. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.